Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Underdog Podcast, where we talk G5 football and only G5 football for Underdog Dynasty. This is episode 34 of the pod and another edition of Joe Talk, where we talk American Athletic Conference football. This is Joe Serpico, and on the other line is Joey Brobeck. What's going on, my man? Yo, how you doing, Joe? It's another week where we've got a lot to talk about. We have still three teams ranked in the top 25. A little bit later, we're going to talk about how we feel one of them should be ranked a lot higher than they actually are, but that's a discussion we'll talk about in a little bit. But to give you kind of a rundown of what we're going to do here, uh, we're going to kick off the show with a little bit of a recap of what happened in the week prior, and then we're going to go dive through. Instead of doing power rankings this week, we're going to do our power rankings in order, but we're also going to do a little coach's hot seat with the news that Tyson Summers is out of Georgia Southern. We figured let's talk about some of the AAC coaches that could potentially be on the move. And to be honest, there's not that many coaches that we think, but we're going to go dive through every single team and tell which ones we think could be on the way out come season end. And there's still a lot of football to be played, so that can obviously still change. And then, of course, we'll end the show previewing what's ahead in the upcoming week. And we got a couple of good games this week, even though it is a, a small slate with only five games this week. But first, let's get it started. We want to recap what we said was the game of the week last week, and that was Memphis taking on Houston. And I'm going to be honest, I was at work that night, so I didn't get to do a whole lot of watching of it. I saw the highlights. I did a lot of reading up afterwards, obviously. From what I understand, and you told me before we started here, it was actually a great game to watch. Yeah, you can make an argument that it was one of the best games of the weekend. Houston went up early in the first half. They were up 17-zip, and Memphis looked completely lost, if I'm being completely honest. The offense couldn't get anything going. The defense was doing fine, giving up only 17 points. Riley Patterson, the kicker, had a chance to put three points on the board to end the half, but... Major Apple took three timeouts, which is just ridiculous. He kicked the ball four times, he made two, and he missed two, and unfortunately the last one that he kicked, he missed, so they didn't get on the board. I don't know what Mike Norvell said, but the Tigers team that came out for the second half was not the same team that we saw in the first half. Yeah, you mentioned the first half for Memphis, and that was actually the first time they've been scoreless in the first half since 2012. And with how explosive we've seen this offense this year, I think that is very surprising. But you just said it. Whatever he did at half to get things turned around, it sure worked. Ferguson ended up finishing the game with 471 yards. Miller, another 10 grabs for 178 yards. But I think in the end, which kind of surprised me looking at the stat sheet, was that Patrick Taylor, if 14 carries for 39 yards, but still have four touchdowns. Obviously, that was a deciding factor. I know you brought up on the night of the game that you can't believe that teams are still kicking the ball to Tony Pollard. He had another nine receptions in that game as well. And I think the main thing in that game, honestly, was Houston really lost it in the end, and it was more because of Postma with a fumble on one series and an interception on the next series that really killed their shot at making a comeback there. Yeah, and I think you can give some credit to Memphis' defense as well. It's the third game now that they've had to come through in the clutch, and they did. They forced two turnovers on Houston's final two drives and obviously ended the game there. You mentioned the playmakers they have. Now the reason why Taylor got so many touches was Daryl Henderson was hurt in the first half and didn't play in the second half. On the other side, Duke Catalan had a similar game. He had 65 yards and three touchdowns. So it's crazy to think that Memphis can gash you in so many ways. Now, if teams jump out early on them, it becomes a concern. And this isn't the first time that it's happened. But we saw that they're able to come back and they truly compete until that final whistle. Yeah, they got the go-ahead score with a minute 49 on a touchdown pass to to Dykes there. And I... You know, and then we just said that they had the, or Houston, that is, had the opportunity to, to win this game, but just couldn't come up with the plays needed. And um, we've been talking about it for a couple of weeks now about the quarterback situation in Houston. And I guess it's going to let us dive into the next game we're going to kind of cover. And it was almost a similar situation with Temple taking on Army. It ended up being an overtime game. They, they being the Owls, look like that they might have a quarterback controversy of their own after Frank Newtile started the game for Logan Marchie, who was out because of an injury. 
but he didn't turn the ball over, and that's been something that has really plagued Marchie in the past couple of weeks. And now Temple's got two weeks until their next game taking on Navy, which I do think kind of benefits them now that they've played Army and then get a week off before they get Navy. But it's a situation where at the end you brought up how Memphis missed or Memphis's kicker, excuse me, made two field goals and missed two field goals. Well, same thing basically happened in the Temple game. Temple kicker lines up, makes the first field goal in overtime that would have tied the game, but timeout was called, goes to kick the second one, and goes wide, and Temple doesn't get what actually should be considered a pretty bad loss considering they allowed Army to pass, and you heard that right, pass their way to tie the game. Yeah, I think it was frustrating to watch that game, and the ending was so just so disappointing if you're a Temple fan. Like you said, they allowed a pass, and it was it was a beautiful pass from Kelvin Hopkins to Jermaine Adams. It was, so I give him it. It was an yeah. NFL-looking pass. Exactly, exactly. He threw it right to the spot where only his guy could get it, and it was a clutch play with a second left. Obviously, it tied it up, but overtime, obviously, Army kicks a field goal. Mary. He made the first one and then obviously Munkin called the timeout. He had a chance to do it again and just hooked it. It's been a frustrating season for Temple to say the least and this is just another game that can add to those frustrations. I mean, I really don't think there's any worse way that you can lose a game the way that they did that one. You let a team that like we, you know, Army is dead last in the country in passing the football they averaged 17.9 yards coming into the game, and they completed five passes on the final drive, including a 16-yard touchdown that we just talked about with a second remaining. And Temple's strength is their secondary. That's what makes it even more shocking is the fact that they got this done. You're talking about an inexperienced quarterback, which means obviously these wide receivers don't get a ton of looks either, and somehow they're still able to get down the field, get that game-tying touchdown, and then – we talked about that situation in overtime, which is truly gut-wrenching, to say the least. I mean, Jeff Collins had to think, you know, with that final drive that, all right, we've got this in the books. You know, there's really no way we can lose this. And then maybe 15 minutes later, it's game over, and you have a loss at home. Your losers are four or five, and Army is now bowl eligible with it. And I was wrong about that being a home game. Hey, at least your boy Armstead had a good game. I I have his numbers written down because he did have one and two. Yeah, he did have a good game finally, and I feel like honestly this was probably the best we've seen Temple's offense look in a long time. Well, they had 500 yards of offense. Exactly. Well, yeah, they they out they outgained them actually. Actually, I, I believe they almost outgained them on the ground too. I think the difference was only a few yards. But you know, I didn't bring up Armstead just because of the fact that they lost, but. He obviously has to be the key piece moving forward. I think this game kind of proved it. He's finally back to the health. He took a couple, or he took the game off against ECU. But again, just a disappointing way for that game to be finished. But like I said, if there's one positive, I guess you can take away from it is you did play Army, got that week off, and Navy's up next. But let's dive on before I get too depressed here about that loss. Let's go jump into a game. Well, let's actually just talk about a couple teams in the bottom of the conference that, to be blunt, we just can't figure out. Uh, what you said about Tulsa and the power rankings, I, I mean, it was perfect. I, I don't know what to say. They're, they're literally, what do you say about this team? One week, they are blowing out Houston. The next week, they're barely scoring against the UConn team that's been one of the worst teams in the country. What do we make of this team? Well, I think the Houston game, you can definitely tell that Houston beat themselves, and it wasn't anything that Tulsa did. We mentioned that they had three turnovers in the game that led to 21 points, whether it was bad field position or our direct score. Then Tulsa goes out against UConn, and what a, oh, what a boring game to watch. The game was three zip at halftime, just super boring, and it was 20 zip UConn with 709 in the fourth quarter left. And granted, Tulsa tried to make a comeback, and they were without D'Angelo Brewer, uh, their stud back. It's like, yeah, it's like you said, if anybody knows what's going on with this Tulsa team, please let me know, because I have no idea what to think of them. 
Yeah, it's like we just said. It's been a situation where they even had a chance to win this game. They had the two plays inside the red zone, and a touchdown basically would have won the game as long as they can kick the uh, PAT there. And it's a situation where they had to come back, which I guess is somewhat good, seeing how you're making a comeback that's on the road. But this is, like I said, it's against the UConn team that's been pretty bad most of the season. And then, I mean, I guess to kind of flip it to the other side, when did we ever expect to see UConn be so highly ranked in the power rankings that we're going to talk about a little bit? And even furthermore, a two-game winning streak. Yeah, I was going to mention the two-game winning streak, which is surprising. But I don't think going into the beginning of the year, if we had to pick a two-game winning streak, looking at their schedule, I probably would have said there's not going to be one. Simply because you and I both agreed that we thought Temple was going to be a solid team this year. And Tulsa wasn't going to be as bad as they were. But as we've seen this year, Temple and Tulsa are both near the bottom of the conference, which is really unfortunate for what we thought in the beginning of the year. But honestly, that's the only way they're going to be able to do it. You could throw Cincinnati in there too, and that would give them a three-game winning streak potentially. But that was really the only way they're going to do it. Uh, we'll preview their next game, which I'm extremely concerned for. But yeah, two-game winning streak. Nobody really saw that coming. And it's, I mean, it was the perfect two teams to do it against. And I don't know if... They're going to get another win until their last game. Which is totally understandable. That was honestly the one game we thought that maybe would be the only one that they would win coming in this year, but they've definitely surprised us. Another team that's surprised us, and it was, we, you brought up how we thought that Temple and Tulsa would be better, but I think we both thought that Cincinnati would be a lot better. Maybe more we thought that the record would be a little bit better, seeing as I have now lost five straight following the overtime loss to SMU. But they are competitive in every single game, which like makes you feel like that, okay, so maybe give them a year, then they'll they'll be on the rise next year, maybe they'll be that team that's, you know, on the plus side instead of on the other side like they are this year. But the way they lost that game was also just demoralizing Hayden Moore with that inexcusable attempt to get the ball out while he's got two people wrapped around him, throws it off Boone's head, somehow it ends up in the air and it's a pick to end the game. And to explain how that even led up to that, I mean, SMU had to come up with a fourth and 26 play and a Hicks finds Trey Quinn for 28 yards to extend the game so they can get their field goal, which was absurd in itself. Hey, well, at least... uh Hayden Moore didn't have the worst interception of the year. I don't know if you watched the Texas-Oklahoma State game, but Sam Ellinger pretty much lost the game for them. I don't know. Did you watch that game at all? Nope, not the Texas game. I do not watch well, I do not watch the Big 12. <laughs> well, I was, so I was watching it, and Ellinger Unless I bet on it. Yeah, Ellinger basically was rolling out to the left, and it looked like he wanted to throw it away, and at the last second decided he wanted to throw it to his receiver and the ball ended up going halfway in between, and it went right to an Oklahoma State defender. Like, just terrible. So at least Moore has an excuse. He was throwing it, just got an unlucky bounce, but Ellinger had no excuse. It was it was the worst pass I think I've ever seen thrown. Fair enough. I can't argue that. I mean, I was pretty upset with the way that game ended. It was, it was a game where uh, Boone had a pretty solid game, actually. I just... He kind of ruined, you know, that with that piss. I mean, I don't understand why you even take the sack. You're still, you know what I mean? You're still in field goal range. You still have a chance to, you know, at least tie the game. Yeah. Take the sack in that situation. Terrible play by Moore there. Well, let's dive into what I think is going to be the discussion of the week here. And that is, again, UCF with another, another Let's say big win, considering the opponent. Uh, we talked about how we don't know how well we thought Navy was, and we would find out once they started playing this better competition. And we have seen that Navy is not what we thought they would be. But UCF is certainly proving to be the number one team, not just in this conference. I'm going to argue in all of the G5. And that's what we're going to talk about now, because there was a little piece that came out, I want to say yesterday, maybe the day before that, where in Dr. Peter Wolf's rankings, what used to be used in the BCS formula, 
actually has the Knights at number two ahead of Alabama and just behind Georgia. That's crazy. I didn't I didn't realize that. It reminded me of I mean we just went through that 2007 anniversary where USF was number two, and obviously we saw what happened to the Bulls after that. UCF can compete. We were discussing this before we started this that UCF can compete with any not maybe not any of the teams, but there's a lot of teams up near the top that we could see them competing with, even throwing USF or Memphis. You can make an argument that there are plenty of teams ahead of them that they could beat. And I know when you look at resumes, the UCF, USF, and Memphis don't exactly stack up with other teams, but you're playing one game. Resumes kind of go out the door when you're playing a game. I mean, Syracuse beat Clemson. Is Syracuse really... They're not even ranked. Are they better than Memphis? No. I can make the argument that they're not. Are they better than USF or UCF? No. I mean, weird things happen in college football. And I think one of the biggest things for playoff expansion talk is they want to see these smaller schools get their shot. And right now it's a New Year's Bowl, which is great, but I think we can do better. And upsets like a Syracuse over Clemson is why teams like UCF, USF, and Memphis have hope going into a New Year's Bowl. I mean, I think we could also look back just a couple of years ago when nobody expected UCF to win that Fiesta Bowl game over the Baylor. Uh, it just nobody saw that coming. Sure enough, UCF does it. And if you're in that situation of the expanded playoffs, obviously back then there was no playoffs yet. But if you're in that situation, they get to move on. We find out how they do against another team. And a team, say they do run the table, they should have a chance. Why not? You know, we've talked about this power six movement and as of late, it looks like it might be something that's legitimate considering that how the whole conference is starting to play a lot better, especially the top two, well, top three teams actually. So I don't understand why UCF should not get a shot. And then I brought up the whole thing about them being number two. Bill Connolly has put in his own thing that he would have them ranked a lot higher in his SMP if preseason rankings didn't come into account. And we talked about this last week, and we were talking about this before we started tonight. I really don't understand why preseason matters once the games start. It should be judged on by based on the talent on the field. And there are some teams that if you look at this top 25, that, that they're ahead of everybody else for that reason. And Georgia's made this massive push up there. Nobody before preseason, they thought they'd be a great team, but nobody thought that they'd be the team that they are now, which is the number, I want to say number three team. Yes, number three team in the country. And nobody saw that coming. Even Miami wasn't even supposed to be ranked this high. It was supposed to be Florida State's year. That didn't turn out that way. So, like you just kind of said, the argument could be made that South Florida, UCF, maybe even Memphis can play with just about any team in the country outside of Alabama, who I think is just far away better than everybody else. Well, and if you look look at the first playoff that we had in 2014, Alabama played Ohio State. Nobody outside of Ohio State was giving them a chance, and they beat, they beat Alabama, and they went and beat Oregon, who beat Florida State by 39, which I didn't, never thought that Florida State deserved to be in the playoff, even though they went undefeated, but that's another topic, obviously, for another day. But... The fact that a four seed won the first playoff proves that there's multiple teams that deserve a shot, and the group of five deserves to have their shot with these big teams. I know traditionalists won't like that, and you brought up the UCF team that won the Fiesta Bowl. You could look at even two years ago, the Houston team that beat Florida State. Now, it's a little different because... Houston had a lot of momentum going into that game, and not everybody thought that Florida State was going to win, but I think if you pulled a ton of people, majority would say that Florida State was going to win that game and not have any troubles with Houston, but Houston turned the tables on them, and they dominated the game. So it's not about... you. I mean, you can look at the resume to get which team you want in, but in the end... It's about matchups, and I don't think you can make the argument that there aren't teams that these three teams that are ranked from the AAC match up with. Yep, 
I agree. I mean, I don't know what else to say other than that. I totally agree with that argument. Going through the list we were saying beforehand, like trying to find teams ahead of them that I could honestly see UCF taking down. And you know, I brought up one team, and it's NC State team that I really feel like is a team they could. Michigan State's another one that I feel like I could totally see them you know, being in a good game with. I mean, the rest of the teams ahead of them, like you said, any given Saturday, you don't you don't know what's going to happen. Any of these teams can compete, and I really do think that this UCF team under Scott Frost is actually something I don't want to say special, just because we still have to wait and see what happens in that final game of the year, and then really that final game of the year, and then the AAC championship. Things could get really hectic, considering if one of those if one of those teams does go undefeated and then somehow loses that championship game, then we're going to talk about who knows what for the you know, NY, NY6 bowl or anything like that. But let's just go through and go through with our next topic here. And we said it earlier. We're going to go through every team's coach in order of our power rankings and kind of figure out which teams are on the hot seat and which teams are not. I don't think we – it just kind of popped in my head now. We didn't talk about – we weren't planning on talking about coaches that could be on the move for new jobs, but I feel like that it's almost too easy to just go through this list and just say everybody's safe and only the couple of names that we have listed are on the hot seat. So let's just go through this real quick. Number one is obviously we've had for a couple of weeks. It's UCF and Scott Frost. Obviously, his job is safe at UCF, but you can make an argument that he's probably out the door once the season's over, barring a disaster. Yeah, I'm right there with you with their success this year. If it continues, obviously, then it's going to be hard to keep him around, especially with the Nebraska rumors and Nebraska struggles. I don't know if their coach is going to last very long, if Riley's going to be around when the season ends. And if he's not, it's... It's going to be really hard for UCF to keep him there. We saw what happened with Tom Herman last year, and I think Frost is heading down that same same alley. Yeah, I can't argue anything you just said there. Uh, that's where Frost came from, that being Nebraska, and all the rumors are there that a reunion is most likely going to happen. You can't blame him. Obviously, if we're going back there, can't blame him whatsoever, even though I would love to see him stick around at UCF and see what they can do in another year. But like I said, that's that's probably his dream job, let's be honest. So it's there for the taking. He's going to go take it, I think. I don't see why he wouldn't unless, like I said, a disaster happens. Now, the other coach that's big name is Charlie Strong, and obviously his seat is pretty safe considering how they've fared this season. On the other hand, I... Don't see a situation in which he ends up leaving the Bulls, barring some team comes out of nowhere and just offers a fortune. But I just don't see any situation where after one year he ends up leaving South Florida. See, and that's where I'm, yeah, I'm right there with you. I'm not sure about his status. Obviously his job's safe. He has nothing to worry about. They're 7-0 and at this point. And even if they finished 7-5 and or whatever they're going to finish, he's still fine. But... I agree with you. I think that he'll stay, but you never know what job's going to become available, and I feel like he's one of those coaches that's itching to get back to a power five position and might just jump at the first opportunity he gets, and that could be this year. I guess it will be based on what opportunities are there. I just can't imagine him leaving after one season, but we have seen crazier things. I mean, Lane Kiffin just seems to be popping around all over the place. So, hey, maybe Charlie Strong does the same. Uh, number three is Memphis coach Mike Norvell. Obviously, his job is safe. Could you see him potentially being on the move, or does he stick around from Memphis for the next couple of years? He's I mean, Him and Strong are in the same boat I think I could see easily see both of them leaving but at the same time like we mentioned with Frost it'd be nice to see them stick around for a while and see where they can bring their programs now Norvell could be a hot commodity if they run the table and right now it's looking like they have a good chance of doing that with their remaining schedule it just comes down to that conference championship game and the bowl game so if they still if they finish the season with one or two losses I think it's going to be difficult for Memphis to keep him around 
which would be rough for Memphis considering how they just lost Justin Fuente too. So it'd be rough to lose two solid coaches in a less than five year span. But I guess it's kind of the nature of being a G5 program. A uh, team that knows all about that is Houston, and they're number four in our power rankings. And Major Applewhite, his job is pretty secure. And while his job is secure, I don't think there's any opportunities elsewhere considering how – and granted, it is the first year. You know, it's not necessarily his guys, whatever you really want to say. But Houston's really has taken a step back, a lot further step back than we honestly thought when we started this podcast. I think if you asked fans after Thursday night what they thought of Major Applewhite, his hot – his Seat might be a little warm, which is a little ridiculous because people are blaming him for the loss because he decided to punt on fourth and one instead of going for it on the 40. We can argue about that for days. Whatever you think, whatever you agree with, whatever you disagree with, you, people could say that his job was in danger after Thursday night, but I think once they calmed down and realized that Memphis, Memphis was the better team and the fact that they only lost by four is something that they're okay with. It really comes down to next year, I think, is when we really start to see if Appleway can coach. He'll still have Ed Oliver, which is nice. Obviously a huge returner, but can he get the talent to still come to Houston? And what can he do with it in years two and three if he's still around? Yeah, I think part of what his dilemma is going to be is that Tom Herman is still not that far at Texas. So a lot of the guys that Houston probably had hoped was going to be coming there, Herman probably scooped in, probably brought them over to Texas. So that's going to be a situation where now Applewhite's going to have to go find, like I said a little bit earlier, find his own guys to put into that system. But let's keep moving forward with the numbers. Here's, here, oh, here's my quick, my quick long shot prediction. So Applewhite's a Texas guy. And right now, Texas is not super happy with their offensive coordinator. So Applewhite could be heading to Texas to meet up with Tom Herman, which I know Houston fans probably cringe when they think of that. But right now, that's not really a far possibility. That's definitely something that could happen. You're going to have a lot of people coming for you now. I'm just I'm uh, just saying, gonna... right now, it's, you know, you put... It makes all the sense in the world. Don't get me wrong. It makes all the sense in the world. No, it's, but it's... you're going to make something pretty... Yeah, Pretty yeah, I'll, make, I'll make it up for them. That's not happening. It's a long shot, and it's, Applewhite wants to be head coach, so he's he's sticking around. They don't have to worry about that. Yeah, but we like to stir the pot a little bit here. A little bit. Now, they're the other coach inside of Texas there that's we still got to figure a little bit out about, and that's SMU coach Chad Morris. I think what we can both agree on is – the one thing we will give SMU credit for is they are beating the teams they are supposed to beat, but they also have yet to show that they can compete with the the upper echelon teams. And I'm not even talking about throughout the country. I mean, just in their own conference. Yeah, I think Morris's offense is obviously doing what it needs to do, and they have the talent to do that. But the reason why he's going to be sticking around is he hasn't found a defense that can play with his offense. We've seen countless games where the defense struggles mightily now they are improved from last year but it's still the weakness of the team and if he can figure out how to get his teams to play defense on top of his explosive offense then I think fans might have to start worrying about his exit from the program because of a promotion but I think in the meantime he's not going anywhere yeah I think he sticks around for at least one more season see if he can really get SMU to be at the top of the AAC, and then we can start this discussion about him potentially moving on. At number six, it's Navy. I don't even think we need to have this discussion just because they're not going anywhere. <laughs> uh, that the Navy offense has been what it is for years now, and I'm pretty sure nothing will change. There's no job out there that will change the situation there. Yeah, Neil Matalolo had... I think it was, was it BYU last year that he was rumored to go yes. to? Yes. And I give you, see, the reason why I wouldn't say his name, cause I didn't want to butcher it, so I give you credit for giving it a heard, shot. I've heard it enough, and if, if I'm wrong, then all those CBS announcers that have been saying his name let me down. Can we actually, cause you just brought it up. CBS, I, do you get CBS Sports where you're at? 
I do, yes. See, I don't get it here, and it really annoys me considering how most of the AAC games are on there. Mm-hmm. It's one of the situations that really annoys me. I mean, I can get it. It costs me an extra 80 bucks a month for one damn channel. I'm not doing it. Yeah, not worth it. Cable networks, get your stuff together. Yeah, but like you said, he's not he's not going anywhere. The thing I love about Navy is every year they're going to be solid. They're either going to be really good or they're going to be solid. Even when they're if they have a losing record, they're still being competitive in all the games that they're in. So, like you said, he's not going anywhere. They got nothing to worry about. Sorry, Georgia Southern, you're not getting him either. I know you guys were really were hoping to keep that option going, but you're not going to get him. There's no way that's happening. Now, there is talk about potential coordinators from Navy getting that job, but we shall see. But to keep going with another option team, our number seven team is Willie Fritz's Tulane team. And, again, there's another guy with his seat safe. Can't imagine him leaving the conference uh, again. He's not going to leave for Georgia Southern. He's not going to leave the program he's at for that program. What do you, uh, what can I say? Is there any way that he can lose his job this year? No, definitely. I think that's a stupid. Uh, yeah, I think yeah, that's no, stupid. no, definitely not. It's it's his second year, right? Believe so. Believe it's the second year. Yeah. They're you know they're improving. Well, look where they they were four yeah, four and eight, three and nine last year, something like that. Four. And I believe. now they're, I mean, they're three and four now, and the first three quarters for them against USF weren't great, but they made a comeback, and there have been other games where they've been competitive, so I think his seat's pretty cold right now, so there's nothing to worry about, and the offensive improvement is enough for people to look forward to at least next year for what they can do. Jonathan Banks and Jonathan Brantley have been outstanding and are a big reason why Tulane's much improved. They just have to somehow find a way to steal a game that they're not supposed to win. Now the bottom of this conference is where everything starts to get a little bit warmer, and we're going to start with a surprise number eight team being UConn. I honestly never saw them getting out of that bottom four, but they just got their way out of there. And head coach Randy Edsel, I guess could just considering the past two weeks, you got to say that his seat is pretty safe right now considering that they've won a couple games we just talked about we really didn't see these two coming we thought maybe they win that last game of the year i would have to argue and granted it is his first year and he does have history with uconn already so i don't really know it's not really his first year well i meant it depends on how you look at it yeah i meant his first year back i should say that's true true. first year back and then i said you know he has the history there so i guess that does help him out but i heard him arguing about the fact that you know, since he left, that everything was exactly the same. Nothing had changed. Yeah, and I don't know if that's a shot at Bob Giacco before he, uh, before he left, but he obviously has figured something out. Now, let's not get too excited. They beat our 10th and 11th teams in the rankings, our power rankings, so there's nothing that you need to get too excited about. Like I said, it kind of depends on how you see it. If you see this as his first year back, then obviously, I mean, you can't really be on a hot seat in your first year, which that might give away my opinion for the next two teams, but you can't really be on a hot seat in the first year unless you're doing absolutely terrible or there's some sort of scandal. So if you see it as his first year, then he's fine. Two-game winning streak, obviously, cools off that seat a little bit but if you see it as he's an experienced coach who's has experience with this team then you might look at it a little bit different but they are three and four and they have the hot hand right now amongst these bottom teams so I think right now you can't really say if he's safe or if he's you know on the hot seat see the reason why I could I'm going to argue that the first year for him argument actually works is because now these are not his guys. Uh, he's he's with you know the previous regime's guys, so I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt of another year. I give him that year or two, and then based on that year, you know, if it's if they're at this point again next year at three and four, I think that might be respectable. Obviously, we don't know what the 
what the schedule looks like next year or who these wins will be coming against and whatnot. But if it's another situation next year where maybe they, maybe next year they, they only win three games, I think then we're talking about his seat really being warm. But like I said, I think for right now, his job is totally safe just because of the fact he's picking up the scraps of a program that was left in shambles, to be honest. Well, that's, you kind of just brought up the next two teams that we have on our list. Uh, number nine is Cincinnati and they are with the first year head coach in Luke Fickle, which is, I'm going to argue is the reason. And you just said yourself is why his job is definitely safe. We talked about earlier how they had lost the five straight games, but they also continue to be competitive in every one of these games. So I feel that come next year, they'll be able to flip that into to more wins, and then we will be talking about Fickle being one of the better coaches next season. Yeah, like you said, the first year kind of gives him a pass for now, and the fact that they are in the games on the five-game losing streak is a little bit concerning in terms of the mental fortitude of his players, but I think we've seen all year that they've been competitive in every game, and that's a big reason why we have optimism going into next year. Obviously they could be better this year and the five game lose streak obviously shows that, but the fact that they lost in overtime to SMU this past week shows that they're, they're right there with some of those middle teams. And then again, we can make the same argument for Jeff Collins, his first year. I could also say that at least Fickle had a couple experienced quarterbacks going into the year. He had to make a decision based with, you know, a couple guys that had some experience. But Temple went in this year with a bunch of guys that had no experience. It's kind of been the main reason why they have been the team that they are this year. Uh, obviously we came into this year thinking a lot better of them and it's turned out to be a season in which we have them now at the 10th team in the conference, which I don't think either one of us saw coming. But like I said, Collins, for me, gets the benefit of the doubt because another situation where, granted, I don't want to use the argument where they're not his guys because Rule left behind a hell of a lot of talent for him to work with, but he also left him with a situation where his best player, being the quarterback, is no longer there. So I think that's why, for me, Collins gets a pass this season. Well, and they're 3-5 and right now, but... You could make the argument easily the last two games they could have won, so that could put them at 5-3, and three, and they lost to Houston by 7. I don't think they'd ever win the game, but, they, I mean, you flip those three games, and we're looking at a completely different Temple team. also agree with that. Can't argue that. I do feel like there's a couple of these games, these close games, they should have pulled off, but that's also... Being a Temple fan, you're used, well, I should say a Philly fan, you're used to getting your heart broken. But in any case, now we're going to dive into the two names, and we only have two teams left, so kind of figure it out. The two teams that we do feel like their coaches are on the hot seat. We have Tulsa at number 11, and head coach is Philip Montgomery, and I'm going to argue that of all the coaches in this conference, his seat is by far the hottest we expected. Much, much better things from Tulsa. At least I did. I know you weren't as bullish on them this year coming in as I was, but I kind of was just following with many people around the country felt that Tulsa had, they didn't have the explosiveness that we thought they or that they had in years past, but they did have the offensive line to build around and make things happen. But that certainly hasn't been the case. And in reality, it's not the offense that's been the problem. It's just been how terrible the defense has been this season. And we said earlier, we don't know what to make of this team from week to week. See, and like you said, I didn't think they were going to be great this year. I didn't expect this. This has been a surprise. Now, he's only in his second year, so I don't think I personally can say that he's on the hot seat. I would say his seat's warming up because of a 2-6 and six start. But fans still need to give him time to show that he can get his guys in, he can get his system into his players and have them figure out what they, who they're going to be, their identity. I think last year was, I mean, if they were good this year, it would be, okay, 
Montgomery's a good coach. But I think with last year, it kind of gave fans the expectation that 10 wins is always going to be the goal. And especially when you get a new coach, you can't always just expect him to pick up where the previous regime left off and do the same things. Now we've seen what Montgomery can do with talent, which is why I'm not saying that he's on the hot seat. But like I said, two and six seat's going to be warming up when you're two and six. And like we talked about, we've been talking about this whole podcast and even before that, I don't even know what kind of team this is. And that might have to do with the defensive struggles, but it's like week to week. It's almost as if we don't know what to expect. We don't know what to expect. I expected a game where they blew out UConn after blowing out Houston and it didn't happen. Instead, they barely score any points. They let UConn's offense has been better as of late, but I don't want to call it one of the best by any stretch of the imagination. And they were behind 20 points. And then they had the rally to almost, you know, make a game out of it. But that's a team I think we both could agree that Tulsa should be beating. Yeah, I, I would agree. I, it's, you know, it's one of those situations where I, if I was a Tulsa fan, I would be worried just because, okay, this is, yeah, you expected to drop back, maybe not the 10 wins, but nobody saw two wins at this point in the season. I don't even see a situation now at this point where they can be 500. No, definitely not, because they have SMU, Memphis, and USF. That's and what I mean. The Temple. Yeah, there's no way. Even that Temple game is, you know, I mean, those are arguably the two teams in this conference that we really just, we have no idea what to make of them. Yeah. And that would actually be a fun, fun game to watch, but it's also the last game of the year, so by that point, what do you really learn? True. And they got killed by Tulane. I forgot about that. They gave up 62 points to Tulane. That's a big step back. Yeah, so it's hard to hard to figure that team out. Very hard to figure them out. Now the team below them is ECU, and they're actually coming off that win against BYU. So I guess for at least one week, Scotty Montgomery's seat is not so hot. I really don't even know what to say about the whole situation down there. This did this win did impress me, but I, we said before the show, I feel like this is more about just how shockingly bad BYU is, and Actually, I want you to kind of bring up the argument that you said about BYU as to why they actually would lose to a team like ECU because we both agreed that talent-wise, BYU is way better. Yeah, well, and let me let me put it this way. If this game was played as the first game of the season, do you think ECU wins this game? Oh, no, BYU is a completely different team, though. Yeah, exactly. For the argument that I, you know, I'm about to let you make. Right, and so it's funny how you can have all the talent in the world, which this kind of goes back to our the USF argument, the BCS rankings, and having expanded playoff that we had earlier, that you can have talent, but if your team isn't there mentally, there are intangibles about football that come into play as well, and we saw that this past week. BYU's schedule is brutal. I don't know who made the schedule or what hatred they have towards these players, but when your season starts after after Portland State, they obviously won that game, but when you go LSU, Utah, Wisconsin, at Utah State, Boise State, at Mississippi State, besides maybe Utah State or Boise State, like those other games are going to be losses. When players start losing they pick up bad habits they don't practice as hard they don't believe in the guy next to them they don't believe in their abilities as a team and as a as an individual so when that starts to creep into the locker room games like the 33 to 17 loss to ECU happen there's no way that BYU should lose the ECU and the only way that it was going to happen is if they were on a six-game losing streak. And that's what happened, and we saw the result. I honestly was stunned by that result, too. I could have maybe saw ECU pulling off a win, but just not by that score. Just totally didn't see that coming. Just with we've talked about how awful ECU has been all season long. To post even 33 points was kind of shocking. Well, we've seen them post actually decent numbers against certain teams, but we said it. BYU, we thought, was a much more talented team. It kind of shocked me, but at least for now, I think that Montgomery's seat... It's still pretty warm. 
is so okay. Yeah, it, I mean it's warm. Yeah, I do. We go as far as to say because I'm, let's be honest, we both don't think they're going to win any games the rest of the year, other than maybe that final one. You know, that last game of the year, somebody might get fired just based off of that last game of the year. Yeah, I when I made, I went through the list and put just different words and I had Montgomery as hot ish. I wouldn't say that it's all the way hot, but I wouldn't say that it's warm. I think he's kind of in between those right now. The the win that we didn't see coming obviously kind of cooled things off, but I think you look at they have at Houston, Tulane, Cincinnati, and the end of the year at Memphis. If they continue to have strong showings in those games, then Montgomery seat might cool off a little bit, but if they go home four and look absolutely atrocious like they have for most of the year, then seat's going to get pretty hot. Can't argue anything said there. So let's end the show with the recap, or excuse me, we did all the recaps. Let's preview what's ahead in the upcoming week. As I said before we started, light schedule this week. There's only five games, and two of them are on Friday night. And you can kind of argue that the one game on Friday night should be a pretty good one, more because I want to see how well one team can compete with its fellow division parts on that side of the conference and that's Tulane on the road against Memphis it's Friday night at 8 o'clock on CBS Sports Network which means I definitely won't be watching it because I don't get that channel Memphis is a 10.5 point favorite for me this is a game I think we both know Memphis will be the winner here but I'm more curious to see just how Tulane can keep up with the Tigers I think Tulane can run the ball on Memphis. Their defense, at least in the first half, seems to be still figuring things out, and they let up quite a few yards, at least for the first half of the game. But can they stop the Tigers' offense enough? We saw what happened at Houston. They had a, Houston had a 17-0 lead, and Memphis' offense didn't look didn't look great. But that's going to be the big key: is can they get enough stops, and if they hang around just long enough, they're going to have a chance, and like we mentioned earlier, we're still kind of waiting for them to steal a game that they're not supposed to win. I don't think this is going to be the game, but we're still waiting for it to happen, and I think when it does happen, we're not going to be that surprised. This is not the game, though. No. Not not going into Memphis's house. I, I can't see that happening. No. And they can't get in a shootout, Ferguson to Miller, Pollard, Henderson, Taylor, you just keep going. Like you, they don't have the weapons to keep up with Memphis's offense. Definitely. Oh no, this is a game where they're going to have to try to control the clock with that option. For sure. Now, we didn't talk about it in the in the recaps really, but I, I was actually kind of surprised when I saw that Banks had two touchdown passes last week. Well, that's what happens when you're down thirty-four to seven. I guess that's also true too. Let's dive into the other game on Friday night. We just talked about how disappointing Tulsa's been. I guess coming into the year, we probably thought this would be a lot better of a game. And that's Tulsa on the road at SMU. Like I said, that's also Friday. It's at 9 o'clock. And I can watch that game because it's on ESPN2. SMU, a a 9.5 point favorite. I don't know. I don't know which Tulsa's going to show up this week. So I don't know if you can take that bet or not. Well, yeah. I'll just bring up what we talked about earlier. So the confusion with this team obviously is is there, and I I mentioned in the comment section in the power rankings. So you have ECU who beats UConn, UConn beats Tulsa, Tulsa beats Houston. So and Houston beat SMU. So Tulsa should beat SMU according to that logic. We don't know which Tulsa team we're gonna get. Personally, I hope that SMU just blows them out of the water so we can. can Go back to just, oh, yep, that makes sense. That's the team we expected, and that's what we were anticipating. But we've seen the bottom of the conflict. I mean, those bottom three teams that I just mentioned, we don't know what we're going to get each week. Sometimes it's bad, but sometimes it's good, and it causes more confusion when that happens. I guess the one thing that we do know going into this game is SMU is going to score. Trey Quinn honestly surprises me every week. I didn't realize until I saw the stats today that he's got three consecutive games with at least 15 receptions. That's just ridiculous. 
I guess that's kind of you're the beneficiary when you got Cortland Sutton on the other side. And that one touchdown grab that he had last week, it was just absurd. Like, I don't even know how he saw it with his hands. It just stuck. That's how you know he's an NFL receiver. He turned around, hands were there, caught that pass, didn't even need to look at it. I was very impressed with that. So, like I said, I think that's the one thing we can go going in this game. We know SMU is going to do their part, though, to put up points, especially considering they probably thought that they could put up a lot more points this past week. So I feel like they're offensively going to really try to put up a ton of points and take advantage of a Tulsa defense that's been pretty bad. But like we said, this will be the week that Tulsa probably matches every score SMU has, and SMU has to kick a field goal to win this game just because we don't know what to make of them. Yeah, I uh, yeah, I hope SMU just puts up 60 and we don't really have to worry about it because, honestly, if Tulsa competes with SMU, we have to start questioning if SMU is as good as we think they are, and I don't really want to go down that road. I want to continue thinking that SMU's got a lot of potential going into next year. And you mentioned Quinn. It's funny that going into this year at the receiver position, Anthony Miller and an SMU receiver were going to be the top two receivers. We just didn't know that it was going to be Trey Quinn instead of Cortland Sutton at this point. Now, Sutton's still good. It's just that teams are focusing on him, and Quinn is taking advantage of that. Which he should. And I give him all the credit in the world because he is – Definitely taking advantage of that opportunity, and it's good to see. I mean, when you're on the other side, that's I mean, that's a wide receiver's dream, honestly, to get that many looks, and he's taking full advantage of it. Well, let's dive into the game of the week in the AAC, and this is probably a game that a year ago many thought would be the AAC championship game, and neither team actually made it to that. And I guess we can still expect it to be a solid game this year, and that is a four and three Houston team taking on USF, who is seven and zero for the first time in their school history. Uh, that game's at three forty five on ESPNU. USF is a ten and a half point favorite, which I feel like is kind of high, considering Houston is still a pretty solid bunch, and we have seen the first half struggles from. USF all season long. And I think it is a little bit telling that while UCF moved up in the polls, USF did move down. Granted, it was only one spot in each poll, but they did move down. I forgot about that. That's, yeah, I mean, I think maybe people are starting to realize that they need to actually pay attention to teams that they're ranking. Not to take shots on anybody, but usually that's a good thing if you're going to put it certain teams in an order, you might want to make sure that you get it right. Houston had Memphis offense on the ropes in the first half, and I would argue that Memphis offense is better than USF's at this point in the season. USF is still good, but I think Memphis is still far and away better and deeper at almost every position, so you can make that argument. Ten and a half points, I'm... I'm not a, fa- a fan of that, I guess. I, w- I don't like that. I think it should be closer. But it is Houston's on the road, so I guess that has a lot to do with it. And Houston's inconsistencies, even you saw last game, the first half and the second half were two different teams. The one thing that I did like from Thursday was Houston ran a lot more up-tempo, and it seemed to be working for them. So even though Postma struggled at the end, the offense looked a lot better. I don't know what they did different. It might have just been the tempo. It didn't look like they ran any different concepts. But if they can do that and they can score on USF, this has the makings of of an upset. And it wouldn't surprise me at all to see Houston finally put it all together for a complete game on both sides of the ball. But they're also facing a team that's undefeated for a reason. I do think Houston has the talent to definitely come into South Florida and pull off the upset, but I think the quarterback play is going to be eventually being the deciding factor. You got a bona fide stud on one side and you got a 
you don't even know who's going to be the guy every week on the other side. So I'm going to give the advantage there to Flowers. And I think a little bit, we talked about how well that Houston ran the ball last week, but USF's strength is actually stopping the run. Uh, they're actually damn good at stopping the run. They're only giving up 94.4 yards on the ground. And that's, I would argue, is a lot of it has to do with Charlie Strong. He's definitely made the defense a lot better this year. I still have to agree with the fact that I don't know about that 10.5. That that's to me, is a weird number. Considering what we have seen from USF this year, all the slow starts offensively, but you know, it's college football. This could end up being the week that they get it all together for 60 minutes and put up 60 points against a pretty solid team, or we could see Houston go down there and pull off an upset. Wouldn't shock me either. Well, and one thing that I'll add, too, is USF is a run-heavy team offensively, and we've seen all year that Ed Oliver's in the middle for Houston's defense, and teams are avoiding him at all costs. They're either running on the outside, they're passing, they're double-teaming him, they're shot like they're literally doing anything to avoid him, and I don't know if USF has the speed to get to the outside, and they haven't passed the ball enough to, to the point where I think they can beat Houston's secondary, which is actually pretty good. Uh, Garrett Davis leads the conference, in interceptions, so I I think that's a big concern if you're a USF fan, and if if they can't run the ball like they've been accustomed to, then I think, like you mentioned, that an upset is definitely possible. This is definitely going to be the game of the week, considering with the last two games remaining are, we don't even have to talk about this game a whole lot, uh, UCF will be at home this week. And they will be taking on an Austin Pay team that, granted, they're five and three, but we also saw Cincinnati put a double-digit game up on them. So I'm pretty safe to say that UCF is probably going to win this game by 40 points. Wouldn't surprise me. Um, that game's at 5 p.m. and I didn't see that it was on TV as far as from what I just saw. It's only on ESPN3 or watch ESPN, whatever you want to call it. Didn't find a line for it either, so I'm assuming Vegas knows that this game is just going to be a blowout. I mean, this is really a week where you might as well just call it a bye week for UCF. You just kind of hope that nobody gets hurt. Yeah, I think they have to be careful, obviously, to not take this team lightly, but I don't think they will, and like you said, might as well just be a bye week. If they lose, I'm just going to be done with the podcast because I'll have nothing to say after that. Yeah, we'll both walk off after that if that happens. Yeah, that's true. We'll, we'll let two other guys start this over because then it really means we don't know anything about the show. and <laughs> We don't know anything about college football in it, general. Yeah, and some people might argue that based on what we've talked about. Tulane, or excuse me, Tulsa and Temple coming in this year, so. Yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah, so people probably already think that. Well, let's get into this last game. The last game is another game where UConn's, UConn's hosting an SEC team. They're not a great SEC team. Probably the worst SEC team that is Missouri. But Missouri is still a 12 point favorite. It's a 6.30 game, and again, it's on CBS Sports Network, so. I won't be watching that one. And Missouri is a team that I'm not too happy with because they blew out Idaho last week. And that was one of my against the spread picks last week. So Missouri, not a fan of yours. But I'm going to make it up to you, and I think I'm going to take you this week. 12 points against the UConn team. I'm, I, I'm still two-game winning streak doesn't mean anything to me. I still think they're one of the worst teams in the country. Oh, yeah, for sure. And or excuse me, Missouri's strength on offense is throwing the ball with Drew Locke and Jamon Moore, their star receiver. And UConn continues to be the worst passing defense in the country. And they're almost 50 yards worse than ECU, who's second to last. God, ECU is so bad. Mm-hmm. But not a good combination when you have one of the best passing offenses in the country and one of the worst past defenses going against each other. I think, well, no, I know the two-game winning streak doesn't mean anything, and Missouri's just going to blow them out of the water. 
Yep. It was almost like UConn is just in this for a nice little paycheck because UConn against the SEC schools just not in the next 10 years, maybe not ever. Are we going to see them pull off a win against the SEC school? But on that note, I really don't have much more to say about this upcoming week unless you got something else you want to add. No, sir, I'm good. All right, I guess we can just close this show out. Again, thanks for listening to another edition of Joe Talk. Again, we did the hot seat part because of the whole situation with Tyson Summer. So please make sure you're listening to the other podcasts outside of our AAC podcast. And that's the guys doing the Sun Belt and Conference USA. Uh, make sure you're following Underdog Dynasty on Facebook and Twitter. You can find me and Joey on our respective names on Twitter, I guess until next week. We want the Cougars to pull off an upset, right? I mean I make this make this show fun. Yeah, exactly. So go Cougs, why not? Why not? Alright. Sorry, Bulls fans. See you next week.